Thank you for tuning in to Z Code Sports Betting Podcast. Let the show begin. Hey, Daniel, aka Fate Public DJ D. Thank you for accepting the invitation to the podcast for Z Code. We are absolutely happy to have you on. So I'd like to find out a bit more about you, your personal background. So if you'll last and where you are from and where did you grow up? Well, Jacob, it was uh, an absolute pleasure to accept the invitation to be on this podcast. Uh, it, it truly, uh, I'm humbled by it. Um, so let's get right into it. Uh, born, raised in New York um, from a, county called Westchester, which is primarily a bunch of white collar stuck up snobs. And I was like the blue collar kid, like lower middle class, but was able to get away with everything because I was so good at sports and relatively good with the ladies. So, you know, people always turn the, the blind cheek to whatever you do, if uh, especially if you're good at sports and uh yeah, my sports sports been my entire life from the age of four years old when I first started playing soccer and baseball. And at, even at that age, I knew that my life was going to revolve around sports in one way or another. And I always put it first. And my parents were always very supportive of that. And I'm a man of principle, always have been a man of principle. I've always been loyal, not someone who you particularly want to cross. Uh, yeah, now, obviously, it's happened and uh, didn't work out too well. Is that where you are still, New York? I'm in, uh, I'm in Connecticut now. Uh, All right. I actually had to move uh, because in January of 2018, I was in a very bad car accident in which I survived a head-on collision on one of our main highways with a 80,000-pound tractor-trailer. And, uh, yeah, and I had about three to four seconds to brace for impact from looking up, and my life, you know, it's a cliche. It's like you see your life before your eyes. Like, I mean, it, it was nothing like that. I was completely at peace. Um, I looked at my rosaries that were blessed by Pope Francis. One of two of my good buddies went to the Vatican and uh, bought them for me and brought them back. Looked at that, went right to God. And I had no fear. And I just accepted this was my time. I lived a crazy, wild life. And that was that. Went unconscious, woke up several minutes later, and everyone was frantic, crazy, and um, it was definitely, there's definitely a, a life, one, I, I've had two life-changing moments, and this one definitely, you know, took, took this, yeah, this took the number one, it dethroned the number two, and uh, to be, you know, candid here, I actually ended up uh, being diagnosed with PTSD. Oh, uh, after after the crash? Yeah. Um, That's incredible. And it was, 
I'm I'm someone of a person who's always been very confident and whatever is I do, uh, whatever I set my mind to, it, it's it's there's no there's no such thing as failure. Like you know, there's many tests along the way, um, and you grow from it. But like like as when it comes to like a main objective, I I don't believe in failure. It's just you know I'll go down swinging. And I'll eventually succeed. That's just my mentality. And when I tell you that after about a week following the car accident, the nightmares, the cold sweats, I didn't. I lost my entire identity. And I thought that I'd be able to overcome it with willpower and how how sharp and strong my mind is, and this was just, you know, a, a temporary phase for maybe a, a month or two, and it only progressively got worse, and I refused to seek any help for it, and I unfortunately found out the hard way that, you know, no matter how tough you are, no matter how strong of a mind you may have, dealing with a trauma like that where you accept death and survive it, and this is in my this this is just from my experience mentally broke me and i'm almost ashamed to say that but it's the god's honest truth it it, it broke me and i didn't even know who i was anymore i didn't leave my house i didn't drive i i only left my house because i had to go to physical therapy appointments for my back which my mother drove me drove me everywhere which was the reason why I had to move back to Ken I had to move to Connecticut from New York because I had to move with my parents uh because the accident was so bad and um it took a year it took a year of just hell until I actually finally you know did my research found a top trauma specialist who works for the VA um and she took me on as a client and I started seeing her and within six months, it was almost like I was, you know, back to my old self, but there's obviously, you know, things that would never be the same, like the way I viewed life, uh, the way I never take things for granted, how I live in the moment now. I don't focus too much on the future. Um, because I, I am living proof that it can be taken from you in a matter of four fucking seconds. And every day, you know, I thank God and I'll never, ever take life for granted. And I believe it's molded me to the man I am today amongst, you know, other, some other wild experiences in my past. But, um, well, first of all, Dan, I'm really happy that you're getting better. And despite everything, you are able to do this podcast with me. I'm really grateful for that. I want to ask you a very personal question on that matter. How did this experience change the way you portray betting? Because I'm sure you were into it beforehand. And I want to know how it has sort of changed the way you, you bet overall. To be honest... I ran my I ran my own book from 2010ish until 2020, and then when the pandemic hit, 
every everyone obviously sports came to a screaming halt uh i wasn't gonna sit there and you know keep paying seven eight nine hundred dollars a month to keep a site running um and that's when i shut down the shop in those 10 years I can only think of one bet I've ever I placed in that time, uh, just because I saw all these kids and how much money they fucking lose and chase and chase and chase and chase. No, I mean, I mean, I had wealthy clients, but I mean, at the end of the day, you want to win. There's health. There's competition. I mean, and like I knew these. I knew like I knew all my clients like i went to high school with them college like so it wasn't like like the random joe like hey uh, like hey buck this this is simon i went to school with him and i vouched for him and it was none of that the only way you replace an action with me is if you knew me directly and i got to meet you and that was that um so I was, I had to collect money from, you know, you know, a few times, a couple, a few of my best friends. And then I had to cut them off because I, my relationship with them was more important than the money they were losing. And at the end of the day, it's a matter of time. It's inevitable that they would build a resentment towards me. So, um, Sorry to go on a little rant there. I know, you know, we'll follow up on this later. But your question was uh, about the betting uh, in relation to my PTSD. Um, I did not. The only bet I placed in 10 years and I didn't allow any action on my book except for all the idiots who wanted to take it. It was the Mayweather McGregor boxing match. And if fucking the odds went down to like. It was like minus 300 Mayweather plus 200 McGregor. And I'm sitting there like, what? I followed Mayweather his entire career. And I know UFC very well. I'm sitting there like mind blown. And I just put out the rule. I sent a huge message out. I go, listen, you're allowed to bet this fight. No one could bet Mayweather. I mean, that's my guy. And, and all my everyone knew that. Like, that was... That was the only time, and I, not only did I bet, I probably bet, I think it was, I want to say I put up, I, I think it, it was nothing crazy, it was, a, I think I put up 3K to win 1,000, I think it was 3K to win 1,000, but the amount of action, I mean, out of the, at the time, the 30-ish clients I had, I'd say 20. 10 of them didn't bet it. 20 of them all had McGregor in different ways. Knockout, first round knockout, second round knockout. Uh, it was, uh, I'm just sitting there like, this is like taking candy from a baby. And that is the only bet that I placed in about 10 years was that fight. And then I took all the action on it. And so I cleaned house. So I had no, I didn't bet at all when I was a book. I didn't even hedge. I trusted Vegas so much that, I mean, obviously everyone runs their own book, you know, accordingly. But I, at the end of the day, I I wasn't no runner. This was my money, my capital. I started off with 
$100,000 bankroll on a new business endeavor. That's how I started being a bookie. So with $2,500, started off with clients and then just grew and accumulated. And when you are taking action every night and the business starts growing, the more trust you have in Vegas. And then you start, you know, reflecting on previous bets you made. And like before I was a bookie, like when I was young, like when I was like 18, 19, and I remember this one bet, it just sticks out to me. It was the Patriots versus the Browns. And these are the type of bets that, you know, I, I would, you know, lay action on. And the Patriots, I want to say, were minus three. I think I believe they were minus 360, minus 370 in Cleveland. And Cleveland, I don't. I mean, they might have had one win. It was midway through the season. They were terrible. And I, I bet, I, it was to win four hundred dollars. So it was almost. I mean, I nearly, I nearly it was at risk of sixteen hundred dollars for four hundred. And the fucking Browns went outright. <laughs> so then I'll never forget that. But then as I as my book grew, I started seeing how everyone else was betting. And majority of them would just take these two or three big underdogs and parlay them. Or they would just fucking tease them. And it was just loser after loser after loser. And I'm like, and this went over a course of 10 years, you know, of course they, you know, won. Maybe I, I guess I, maybe in total 20% of those bets over 10 years. And it, it just, it was just mind blowing to me. Cause when you look at it, when you're not in you're, when you're not taking the bets and you're just looking at it as a pure odds statistical standpoint, like, and a couple, a couple of these guys are, you know, big Wall Street gurus, and they're all about numbers. So they see these odds, and they're like, "Oh, this is a guaranteed win." I, I parlay a minus three fifty and a minus two eighty. Like, I don't, I don't even, I, I barely, you know, get even odds. But like, I'll bet five hundred on it. Yeah, good luck on that. And it was just comical. So I just. Uh-huh. So one thing that always interests me from a perspective of someone who was running a bookmaker is how they were able to manipulate the odds. Obviously, uh, I want to ask you that question as well and understand how and when did you make the changes accordingly? Did you look at other bookmakers as a benchmark or did you use your own perception as well along the way? Later on, um, when I... Like the final, th- like the last three years, because you're gonna think I'm crazy when I tell you this. Like, this is like the, this is like the old school way, but I didn't need to do this. I just enjoyed it. I used Bovada, and you weren't allowed like you could, like back back then. You, you couldn't just you know lock into it. You can't create a Bovada account and just bet. It wasn't like that. So what I would do for all my clients, and this was this made me crazy and stressful, but I love the rush. I <laughs> you don't think I'm crazy, but my clients would screenshot me their bets, and their screenshots had to be within three minutes of like I would check the timestamp. If they didn't show a timestamp, 
on it, like on their phone with the screenshot, the bet was voided. So as long as the, the screenshot showed within like a three minute window, it was fine, which, you know, only a few times people tried to, you know, be sneaky. Um, but like I said, I knew all the kids and they had enough respect for me. But when people when start, people start losing a lot of money, you know, kind of respect goes out the window and they want to get an edge any way they, they can. But uh, <laughs> so I was taking action through screenshots on my phone. So I was getting, I mean, 300 messages a day and I would have to go individually through all the screenshots. So there were times that I didn't even know how much action was on one team. That's how much trust I put in Vegas. Blind trust. And I wouldn't find out the results until the end of the night and I would, you know, do the balances. And it was madness. And I would just keep track through Excel. And I did this for about five, like five to seven years. Uh, And it was this madness. But I also got a rush off of it in a high because along the way I ended up actually uh, getting sober. Um, I had had a, a big drug problem, which stem from past statute of limitations now, so I can say what I want. I was, uh, a, let's just say, uh, a kingpin of sorts of running my own uh, drug empire in the county I lived. Um, so I was able just to get high on my own supply. Rule number one, not to, but when you're making so much money, you know, slowly progresses and, you know, r- Roxy's Oxycontin Rocaset 30 milligrams is what I was distributed and I ended up becoming hooked on them. Um, I kind of want to find out how did you portray sports when you were running a bookmaker? Obviously, you were a big fan of sports yourself. So did you feel like you were part of the action when the guys were placing bets, you know, on a team, B team, and whatever, or do you feel like you wanted to place bets yourself as well? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I was a part of it. They were just—they were screenshotting their bets with how much money. It was all my money. I mean, the bets were still valid. I had no one above me. Like it was all my money. So whatever bets were placed, it was all that was my rush, my thrill, and like I love—I just love being on the edge. I love that excitement, and I'm an adrenaline junkie. So that was my vice, and uh, now and in the beginning when I first started being, running my own book, it was just you know add another business, you know another business endeavor. You know I had I had the the drug operation going, and now you know I was like all right, you know let me run my own book. Um, but it wasn't I didn't really start pushing the book and really expanding until when I got clean about 18 months later or so, because my best friend ended up going to jail for me uh, and did 18, he did 18 months um, on a charge that should have been mine, but my charge would have been greater, but he wouldn't rat me out. Um, so I like the calling. Yeah, that that's what my calling was to get sober. And 
I, uh, I cold turkey a 20 a day raucous at habit, um, which is, I, I don't believe taking the easy way out. Like in my head, I was like all the people that, you know, I cause pain to and suffering and overdoses. I had so much guilt and I didn't believe that I should go to a rehab. I, I felt that was cowardly in my mind. I was like, fuck it. I'm going to suffer just like they did. And with, if you ask any drug addict, they'll tell you their biggest fear is the withdrawal. I embraced that shit. I had three Rockasets left. And I'll never forget the day and how it all came about. And at that moment, I decided this is it. These are my last three and bring on the hell. And that was May 27th, 2012. And after that, I never touched a painkiller again. I'm sure it would be a completely different conversation if we had this uh, eight years ago. Awesome. Oh, oh. You wouldn't be with me right now in terms of uh, uh, your personal headspace. No. Oh my God, hell, I'd be friggin' nodding off. And the crazy thing is, I was going to school during all this. I was the head student advisor at my college. I, I had a 3.3 GPA. Like, I was living a double life. And it, and I don't know how I pulled it off. I mean, I guess I do because, I, you know, like I did prioritize, but I still don't know how I pulled it off. And it's comical, but it's. You know, I could have done a couple of episodes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you've presented us with a very extended live history, I suppose. I kind of want to move on, if you don't mind, to where you are now, which is obviously being a member of Zico community. You are a very dedicated person. You have shown a lot of interest and obviously enthusiasm. So if you could just run us through on how you got into Z-Code and what triggered you joining the community. Once sports uh, came back, I always n knew my strong, like, uh, I mean, I was always, at the end of the day, I was relatively, you know, good at, you know, betting. Um, obviously now it's investing and trading. And that's when I, you know, dedicated myself to it. Even, you know, a few weeks before Z-Code, um, I treated that straight business. The same mentality I had was when I was a bookie. I brought that right over in all those experiences with that same mentality. And I waited until college football and NFL began. And, uh, you know, and I was just crushing it. Um, and I always had a sharp eye. Um, and I just never really, I just never really, you know, expanded beyond that. Because there's one thing to have a sharp eye. There's another where, you know, lines can be deceiving. And, you know, you need to put your due diligence in and do research. So, you know, though I was having success, my first, I believe it was first, I believe the first three weeks, I was not a member of Z-Code. Uh, but I was using 
I uh, came across the Line Reversals app, which was free. Um, I didn't have access to uh, uh, a lot of games, but I did, it, you know, it, some games I had access to. And I started like a little trial run, even though I was placing action with baseball and using, you know, the 1.5 the 1. run line. And I, I mean, just on that alone, I absolutely crushed the first two rounds of Major League Baseball playoffs. Just reading the charts and just studying the line movements and then waiting. Like, I would always just watch how the lines progressed, where it opened, and then just how it went throughout. And then in the playoffs, it was only 24 hours. Typically, between you know, less than twenty four hours between games, so I was just watching, and at that point, it was all about what you know to me and what I saw. It was all about that last 15, 20 minutes before first pitch. What does that line do? Does that line dance? Does it remain stagnant? What? What is it? And I'm a big fade the public guy, probably because of my you know my bookie experience. And just the public don't fucking win. They did. The chandeliers wouldn't be hanging in Vegas. You know, they wouldn't be hanging throughout casinos in the world. So I was, you know, all about, you know, fading the public. And I'd always, you know, look for like my criteria would uh, particularly be like 70, uh, 75%, like 73, 75% and above on um on a game so i would always anything like 25 27 percent the other way i would i mean if everything if there was a line reversal or a big jump a big spike i would hammer it and i was just i mean the first right away i picked right away where the first series i crushed was the houston astros and no one gave them a shot everyone it was absolutely crazy no one gave them a shot in hell and the miami marlins and I literally have Zico to thank for that because I literally, because of Zico and the late line movements that were so drastic in the Marlins versus Cubs series and the Astros versus, uh, oh my gosh, I forgot the first series they played against, who they played, and I, maybe the Twins. I could be mistaken. And I, and I hammered. And they and I hammered. I didn't. I didn't even bet the run line. I bet straight underdog uh, throughout the entire series and cleaned up huge. Just on those two series alone, I took Miami every game and I took Houston every game. And I mean, I mean, everyone. I mean, everyone under the sun was especially on Chicago. I mean, there was one game in particular. I believe it was like. 93% or something crazy, and the run line was like 85%. And I'm, I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm sitting there, like, I'm like, how's this possible? Like, what? I'm like, what? like do people really think Chicago's not even that good? Like, let alone, like, there's no home field advantage. It, like, what is going on here? Like, and I'm looking at the value, I'm like, plus 200. And I'm like, get the heck out of here. And then I saw these late movements. And I and that's how I began to trust line reversal. 
and I was just cleaning up. And then, you know, I just, I started, I carried over uh, in the football, which was a little difficult uh, just because I just believe the run line, puck line's a lot easier to, to read. Um, when you use line reversal on, you know, like any other sport, when it's not a run line or puck line, it, it's, you know, a little bit challenging unless you know what to look for. And you have a specific set of criteria that you, you know, you won't break. Like you, you know, you stick to your guns unless there's an anomaly. And then, you know, you, you like for an example, game one, Yankees, Indians. The line was very, the, the, it, the Indians were a slight favorite in Cleveland. And it, I mean, it was a battle. I think it was like 52%, 48%. It was very close. And the line swinged from Cleveland being a 130 favorite, 127 favorite, to Yankees being a minus 120. I banged that game for, it was, I bet six to win 500. And Yankees won that first game. Um, so like there's an ex, you know uh, an exception to my rule my criteria like the game you know publicly it was very close but that move that's a huge fucking line reversal and it happened late and I was all over it so there's games like that where I will you know I will it's not exactly fading the public but when stuff like that occurs. I will bang it the other way. I will take action on that game. I will invest on that game. There are a lot of opinions out there on why this is happening, but I kind of want to get it from you as well. Why do you think major movements happen right before the start of the game? I be- in baseball, I-, I believe it's, especially in the COVID times we were in, I just believe the public just drives that shit up. And... The sharps know this and are sitting there waiting, and, and like they, they like the Chicago series and yeah, like I'll see Chicago because they were even they were the biggest favorite of them all going against Miami, and Chicago had no reason being upwards like a minus two fifty two sixty favorite, none at all. That game, that series, I mean, it was. I mean, you Chicago had a slight advantage. Did they have a friggin' two and a half one advantage? Get the fuck out of here! And the sharps knew this, and I think the public just drove it up and drove it up. And since there was so little time in between games, that they would just wait at the like the sharks that they are, smell blood in the water, and then they would bang it. At the time, I you know, was still becoming accustomed to it. So I, I didn't get the, you know, the best of odds. Still got, you know, plus 200 odds, plus 190 odds, whatever the case may be. But um, it wasn't it wasn't until I became a member of Z, you know, anticipating that line movement and banging it just about when the sharps do a little after. So you get that value. And I obviously, I, you know, learned that through... Uh, old school, 
Uh, he, I mean, he's been, he was my mentor from day one. He took a, he took a liking to me. Um, the butcher, I mean, those two, Christopher, Blair, but in this scenario, it was really, you know, old school. Um, and that's where I learned about anticipating the line movement, trusting my instincts. But, you know, before I, before I came member, I, I didn't know that. I just strictly based it on that late line movement in which I viewed it as just watching, just following the chart. And then all of a sudden that major spy, a major 50, 70, 80 point swing. That is crazy. Um, I'm no 15 minutes before first pitch, no fucking squares or the public are banging a line and changing it 80 points. Just not happening. I mean, maybe, maybe there is instances where it has, but in the COVID times we were in, no home field advantage, just the way everything was set up. That was all, in my mind, that was all sharps. All. So I really waited to see that. And that's why I would never, I wouldn't place a bet until 15, 20 minutes before until I saw that late movement. So just to get this straight, what is your favorite team across any of the sports? Two. Well, I'll go three. Yankees, Giants, Man United. From this conversation and based on your name, I've gathered that you are basically a guy who fades the public in any scenario. So I kind of want to get a better understanding of how you react when emotions come into play, which in a case where you have a favorite team, I want to know, let's just say you are betting on Manchester United versus Chelsea and there is all the money coming in on Man United, as you would imagine. And then you have a big spike in movement on Chelsea just before the start of the match. Let's just say the odds are in favor of Man United, but it's only 60 to 40%. Like the, say, like the saying goes in the movie The Bronx Tale about Mickey Mantle. That motherfucker don't pay my bills. Man United don't pay my bills. Get the fuck out of here. I'm in the business of making money. Like, I, I'm sorry. Like, man, man, you. So there's no team that you would take no. over, over money. Because I was a bookie. So I had a deal with freaking every fucking week. Giants, Yankees, Giants, Yankees, Giants. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. it, it, it became so redundant that, you know, it just gets, you know, ingrained in you. Like, like that was one of the hardest things when I first started out was like, Fuck, I hate rooting against the Yankees. I hate rooting against the Giants. It's uncomfortable. And then, you know, things start to change. And, you know, about a year or so, about two years in, you're like, yeah, you just kind of, you're, you're used to it. And that's all, you know, especially New Yorkers. Like, they're all about their pride. They're all about betting the team. Like, fuck this, fuck that. I'm wearing 500 on them. It's a fucking lock. Like, all right, go ahead. They're a fucking lock. Good. Fucking give me money now. Like, there's no emotions. There's no emotions in this game. It's killed or be killed. 
and right. I'll I'll never let emotions affect a, a, an investment I'm gonna make, no matter how much I love the team. So, no way. So my next question is about tools that you use. Obviously, you mentioned the the line reversal, which is your number one, it seems right no, now. Um, so line reversal. Do you use anything else, maybe inside or outside of Z code? Um, aside from it. What, with the COVID era, I try to do it when I go through the list of, you know, games uh, on a, a particular day. Um, like, especially like, I mean, it's hard with college football because these, you don't know until last minute who's going to pop COVID. They don't need to reveal that information as where NFL, you know, has to. Like, you, you find out earlier things leak in college they're kids like they're and so it's unless it's a mainstream like trevor lawrence stuff like that's not getting out so it's very hard so that's why i really try to wait till i with college i try not to sit there and beat the line i try to wait for all the information to come in um but i i i I'll search, you know, the web and try to find out through even through their own college website or through local newspapers, uh, like even slight, you know, tip offs or just something where it's like, huh? Because at the end of the day, Vegas is taking all this into account, but sometimes you just don't know what that is. So I try to do the best I can to find out, you know, what that why the lines set at where it is and what could they be alluding to on that and i try to you know i try to play detective but uh i primarily besides that i stick to to z code i like I said line reversal is a, a big thing um the volatility oscillator what oscillator oscillator oh yeah the, the oscillator yeah, I, I I like the oscillator. I like the volatile. I I, I, I like I like stable teams. So I mean, this all goes process. Um, I mean, a recent game in which the public was all over, and this team's very stable was the Notre Dame versus um, North Carolina. And all the numbers, all the criteria fit for me to, you know, I mean, I did pick North Carolina, put it on the board. But the one thing that stood out, and I didn't talk about this on the wall, like aftermath or anything. Um, the one thing that, you know, I was hesitant on pulling the trigger, but I did really like North Carolina was the stability of Notre Dame. And I believe it was like five to one, six to one in how stable the teams were. And I mean, that's a major difference. And that was in the back of my mind. And I, I don't want to say I should have known better, but Notre Dame's one of those teams where Vegas props those lines up. Like, they're a public team. Everyone loves Notre Dame. Like, you know, it's – so Vegas knows what they're doing. They set traps like that. They'll inflate a line high, and it'll go even higher because the public's going to be all over it. So, you know, 
you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But in the back of my mind, I should have stayed, not stayed away, I probably stayed away, or if anything, I should have took Notre Dame, um, just because of how stable they were. Um, but I didn't, you know, um, I lost. But um, those tools are very useful, and I use that a part, as part of my process. Like, I weigh different things out. Obviously, certain tools weigh more than others to me. Um, and even, uh, even on the, on the wall, um, and old school, oh, always says this, whenever the whole, the entire wall is on one team, it is set, well, he's been on since 2015, I believe. Yeah, he's, so in his five and a half years, six years experience on Z-Code, he goes, more times than not, it always fails. It always goes the other way. And um, and so far, it's hold true. And I'll, and I'll actually fade the wall in certain scenarios. It's nice that we have this move transition to talking about losses. And I know nobody wants to talk about them. But <laughs> I just want to ask you this question as well. How do you go about a losing streak yourself? Yeah. Without sound arrogant, uh, with a gun in my head, I can't tell you five bets I lost in a row. Can't even think. But I've had major losses. And there was one time in particular where, um, you know, and it, it was during, it was uh, on Z code, obviously, because like I said, I haven't, I, I didn't start betting again until, you know, major league playoffs. And uh, when I became, when I learned of line reversal, download the app, and then, you know, the first week of college and NFL. Um, but this might have happened three. Three weeks ago, maybe four, three, four, and uh, and I'm I I know majority of people don't post their unit size and what they're they're investing. Um, however, I do, and you know I put a, a you know a full disclosure out there uh, on. I mean, probably a month in, and I wrote. A whole thing about my unit size, unit size is totally, you know, in correlation to my bankroll and profits. I don't advise anyone to, you know, invest the sizes that I'm doing. I, I actually, the unit sizes that I place and invest in are usually degrees of confidence I, I'm in. And I know other people, you know, they they play a flat system. Like I was having to talk with. Uh, G Dog, actually, like two days ago, and he says that you know, with sports, um, like with one sport, he'll remain flat, same unit size, but then another sport where he's more comfortable and he'll, you know, he'll wager a higher unit size. As where I, I'm all over the place, but I, it's because of my confidence level in the play so you know that's why to me records mean nothing um because i bet a lot of you know 
I, I bet a decent amount of dogs and my ROI's pretty substantial. I mean, if you, I mean, on this, if you just want to use a, a recent example, my tennis alone, I mean, I don't know if you saw, but I mean, that the, what I did during the, in those Nito finals was unheard of. I had one loss the entire tournament. I bet I faded Nadal Joko the entire tournament. I hit Nadal. I hit the parlay in the semis that faded Joko and Nadal playing the same day against Medvedev and um, Theum. Listen, every every now and again, yeah, I, I it's good to have luck on your side, and and you know, um, but. there's been times where luck went against me, but you know, and this, I was just so glued in because of all the tennis I watched during the pandemic, once the restart happened. And then, you know, once it started, once the French ended, I mean, Gioco played what one tournament and then got eliminated in the third round in which I bet against him and hit for 18 units (laughs) <laughs> I bet him to lose two. I, I invested I, him on losing 2-0 against uh, the Italians. Sanijo? I bet on, I bet Sanijo to win, and I bet Sanijo to 2-0 and hit wow. that. <laughs> Nadal, I mean, Nadal played two tournaments. I mean, and everyone else is playing consistent. They're, they're playing all these tournaments, so they're in a rhythm. And it's a major difference. You're going from clay to all of a sudden indoor hard. It's not like, you know, hardcore at the U.S. Open. I just was not confident in Joko's play. He didn't look crisp. He did not look like himself leading up to it. And just his, I know he's a seasoned vet. I mean, the guy is arguably the best player in the world. Uh, but the time he took away, and the way he was playing, I just thought it was a, it was n- not uh, the best of matchups. And I just from the, from jump, I just not see him him or Nadal winning. You know the tournament. Uh, uh, it was going to go to the new blood, one of the new bloods. I mean, Medvedev had you know favorite winning at all, um, but. That came with theme. Yeah, it could could have went, you know, either way. But you know, the value the value was there. Mm. I anticipated a three setter. I mean, you know, um, I, yeah. I, I mean, I was. I mean, Medvedev beat him two sets of zero. I was like, oh wow, like that kind of put put things in a little bit of perspective. Like, all right, like. Uh, <laughs> He, he was just not able to return Medvedev's serves. And for that, when they were having rallies, his unforced errors and this Medvedev got to everything with his length and durability. I mean, the dude, is, it was just, you know, I, I want to say it was a combination of the lack of Choco playing and the form that Medvedev was in. Funny enough, it is only now that we're starting to see the new gen players coming through. And it's been a long time coming because the likes of team are already in their late 20s or in second stage of 20s, we could say that. (laughs) But 
obviously the likes of Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, they're all over 30 years old at this stage. So I'm really happy to see this new generation of players. And some of them are quite young as well, like um, the likes of the um, Kyrgios and so on. Those guys are obviously breaking through, but TM is right up there, um, you know, fighting against the top four without any, any problems whatsoever. Yep. Yeah, I wish Federer. I mean, Federer took it. I'm see that that's gonna be that's. I'm curious to see how that you know plays itself out because he got you know he he's got a sufficient amount of rest. I said I a Federer like I wouldn't touch a Federer match in the Australian Open when it what if I mean it's gonna be delayed the tournament uh probably you know weeks it's not gonna probably start until february march who knows i mean at this point there's you know there's no point even trying to take a guess uh, what's going on in the world but uh yeah federer it's gonna be interesting to see because he's gonna have a lot of tape and he's gonna he he's a very wise and smart player and he's definitely <laughs> i think he he is going to capitalize um, i remember sorry just to stop you there i remember when he um Australian Open is always a tournament which shows how the player is going to perform for the rest of the year or at least sets himself yeah. up to play for the rest of the year. And it's also the first tournament where there is obviously a gap between the actual tennis play because the, of, you know, New Year's Eve celebrations and so on. But it's always remarkable how prepared he is when he hasn't played for a number of months. And this is kind of like right now he hasn't played for a couple of months as well. He's been gone, you know, he hasn't traveled at all. And also, rest of the players, some of them came back on the tour, some of them just refused to, to go on for the rest of the season. And he just, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to, to see how he's going to perform. I believe Australian Open is going ahead in two months' time or one month and yeah, a half. January 18th, uh, but it, it, um, reports came out. Uh four or five days ago that more likely than not, it's going to be delayed at least uh, several weeks. Oh, more rest is better for him. I mean, I think it's just, I think for him, it's going to be, you know, you know, he's working his ass off. Like Federer has got a great work ethic, work ethic. He's not going to come, you know, to a major tournament after this long layoff and not be prepared. Like if anyone who thinks that you're going to lose a lot of money. That's my, you know, that's my opinion on the matter. Um, I definitely would want to see him play a match or two uh, just to get an idea. Um, but I think he's going to be, he's, he's going to be prepared. I'm really curious to find out how many more years Federer can continue this form for and obviously continue his career for. I do want to move on to the next question, though, because we've talked about all of the guys on Z Code, and you've mentioned the likes of Butcher and Old School, and both of these guys are absolutely amazing. Obviously, Christopher too, and um, don't have enough time to talk about everyone, but I do want you to mention uh, some of the inspirational people that you may be following on Z Code as well that you'd like to talk about. Oh yeah, I mean. It... <sighs> I'm someone, and I, I wrote this on the wall. I, I mean, I, I mean several times, um, and I even said it. Uh, I even said it to you know a, a member who's probably been a member for four or five years, and I only had a month. Um, 
at the time, but you know, I'm just someone who speaks my mind and my body of work is so, you know, I've been, my body of work has been able, has given me the voice that where people respect what I have to say. Um, I mean, and I'm not coming off cocky or arrogant here. I'm just, I mean, I, I, I don't know how other, you know, newbies have come throughout the years, but I'd say I made a pretty big friggin' impact in my first 30 days. I put it up against majority of any other newbies in their first 30 days. Um, and what I have done from day one is I read the wall up and down every day. That's just one thing I always do. Uh, it doesn't matter if, you know, I don't follow you or if, you know, you're in the top 30 experts or top 100 members. It doesn't matter. I read everything. Um, obviously, there's a tremendous amount of members, members who don't post. Um, but with that said, I read everything. I take every piece of information. I read dialogues with other people just to get, you know, try to figure out, you know, what, what's going on in their mind and, you know, in their headspace and how they look at certain matches and why they're picking certain plays if they do reveal. Um, but I actually probably go against what Z-Code initially tells you and how it says only follow two or three experts. Um, you don't want to get too confused. Um, I actually follow probably nine or ten experts in different in, in different fields of their expertise but I never let I never make plays based on what they say I take into account but I'm my own person but I do follow I follow like I said old school has been a mentor for to me from day one he's took a liking to me um, and he is a straight shooter and, you know, and him and Butcher are hard as hell, on me, but they will throw me, you know, compliments, you know, every now and again, which, you know, I'm not here to get compliments. It's great when they give them to me, but I want them to be hard on me. And, you know, old school is like my rock. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know what it was, but, you know. Old school took a liking to me after only two or three days on on Z code, and ever since, I mean, I literally, I literally look at him as my mentor. Um, we always have dialogue every day, whether it's briefing back and forth or in depth. Like we really, you know, pick each other's brains, and um, and it's been an honor. Uh, the butcher. Christopher, I love I. Christopher is the man. Um, I, I I like I, I I his body of work speaks for himself. I love that he has that arrogance to him, and but he's very but he's also very humble at the same time. But it takes a certain type of personality to understand that and to appreciate it and to know that he's not coming from a bad place. And I understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a person who has been doing this one specific thing 
which is failing the public for a great majority of time um, ever since joining Zcode. I kind of wonder if you go into the the rhythm of sort of making a system as well. Are you working on something as, as well right now? I'm always stri- I'm always striving for greatness, and I don't want to just always be doing well. I I always you know I I always want to push myself. Uh, I just you know I uh, I just never th- thought about creating my own system. It kind of feels like you know even the system that I would cre- I mean possibly create it's already been created like an anti-public system and the, the filters. I mean I, I you know I'm not a I'm not a like an app developer or system like I'm not I don't so I wouldn't even know really how to go about as such uh to be honest with you um Mm. the thoughts cross my mind i just never you know it's just not my my strong suit i'm not saying i'm not capable of doing it i just don't have any you know knowledge of how to you know create my own system you know that's really you know it's not uh has nothing to do with oh no i won't do this no i'm I'm not at all i i want to be the absolute best i could possibly be like i'm trying you know like i'm trying to you know at you know 33 years old you know growing be one of the best on all of z code at such a young age (laughs) right awesome man no i definitely wish you all the best with that and i think um you know with your approach and your positivity and um just the general everyday interactions that you have on the wall, you are definitely thriving towards that. Um, it, it's been a great podcast. Thank you so much for that, Daniel, for your time, especially because oh. this was a very extended podcast. <laughs> we, we definitely got a lot more out of you than I would have imagined. Oh, I'm <laughs> book. I mean, I, honestly, I, anytime, anytime you, you want to do a podcast, <laughs> by all means, I mean, I have nothing to hide. I love, you know, being an open book. I, I, I love it. Thank you for listening to our Z Code Sports Betting Podcast, where insider systems, secrets, and tools are revealed to help you win on sports betting. If you have a comment or question, make sure to visit us at www.zcodesystem.com. Download our free sports prediction tools and join our VIP club to follow winning systems from people who make a living betting sports professionally. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. See you next time.